Morning, everyone. Please stand as you're able for today's Old Testament lesson from the book of Micah, chapter 5, verses 2 through 5a. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me. One is, one is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she is in labor has brought forth. Then the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall live secure. For now he shall be the great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Michael, thank you so much for reading our lesson, and I want to add my word of greeting uh, to that of Adam Jones. We're so glad that you're with us today in person on this fourth Sunday of Advent. We're grateful to Spencer and Ava, our acolytes, who today have led us in the liturgy and lighting the fourth candle, the candle of love. And to all of you who are with us online, what a joy it is to be with you and what a privilege to be in your home today to teach and to share God's Word as we are now just six days from the day, from Christmas Day. We look forward to Friday evening, Friday afternoon and evening. Adam reminded us that we'll be here at 1, 3, 5, and 7. Uh, we'll be online streaming live at 1 and 3, and then in the evening, those will be posted online so that you can watch and worship wherever you are at whatever time you would like on Christmas Eve. Uh, Mason, thank you. We're looking forward to tonight at, at 4 p.m. this afternoon down in the Tabernacle. It's going to be a great night, uh, and we look forward to being with you and the praise team, and thanks for all your preparations, and, and really this whole season of Advent, from our youth Advent concert to last Sunday night, the Festival of Music was just fabulous. And, uh, and the uh, joy sound on Tuesday night, all that's going on, and as Adam reminded us uh, on uh, that's coming up, the longest night service uh, this week, you'll want to remember that as well. And we're so grateful, especially to our worship and arts team. We're grateful for the way that God blesses us through them and the, and the blessing that they are to us. Well, on this fourth Sunday, we're concluding this series that we began three weeks ago on the Sunday after Thanksgiving on this uh, series called Wishful Thinking. Michael read for us yet again from one of the 12 minor prophets of Israel. And as we've mentioned all along, we call them minor prophets not because of their, that, that they're less important than Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, but because they're more succinct. These are very brief uh, messages that are given to us in the last 12 books of the Old Testament, the minor prophets. It's interesting that the name Micah, you know what it means? Micah is a brief form of the, the name Micaiah, which literally means, it's a question, who is like the Lord? Micah, the name itself, I think, is an affirmation of faith in our God who is incomparable. 
He was a contemporary of Isaiah and Hosea. And by the way, he was a hero to Jeremiah. It's interesting that Jeremiah 26 verse 16 actually quotes Micah the prophet in his own prophecy. One of the things that you'll note about Micah, if you read the seven chapters of Micah, is that this man had a rather uh, vivid imagination. Prophets usually do. I think it was Albert Einstein who said, imagination is more important than knowledge. Children seem to understand that. He also said the surest sign of intelligence is not knowledge, it's imagination. Logic is helpful and will get you from A to B, but imagination will take you everywhere. I'm fascinated how confident children, sons and daughters, are in their own imagination. And I don't know how or why, why or when it happens, but, but unfortunately, oftentimes when we grow up, we often trade our dreams for something more realistic. Our son is a pastor in North Georgia Conference. He's serving as an associate at First Methodist Noon in Georgia. He called me the other day and said, Dad, I was talking to our kindergartners about Christmas. I was telling them the Christmas story. And in the process, as you can imagine, is the conversation quickly turned to gift giving. And so I asked the children what they were hoping for to receive for Christmas, and the hands went up, and one said a Batman, and one said a Barbie doll, and one said Legos. And suddenly, one little guy, about five years old, threw up his hand and said, my father killed a chipmunk this morning. <laughs> and Andrew said, I didn't see that coming, but I realized that something tragic happened that morning, and this little boy's naivete got crushed by reality. Or as we used to say, his karma ran over his dogma. It was Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament professor at Columbia in Atlanta, wrote a book called The Prophetic Imagination in which he said, it is the vocation of a prophet to keep alive the ministry of imagination, to keep on conjuring and proposing alternative futures to the single one that the king says is the only conceivable future. I've noticed in our culture, and this is true historically, that we tend to critique prophets as being unrealistic. And maybe that's why there are those in the landscape who try to create a world without God or apart from faith. Karl Marx said, religion is the opiate of the people. In other words, in his mind, it numbs us to reality. Religion distances us from realism. And Marx believed that faith was essentially a denial of what's real. But Micah was anything but naive. He never denies reality. He defines it. In fact, if you look at the introduction to his book in the signature verse, he dates his ministry. In Micah 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth, that's his hometown, in the days of King Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah, which he saw or foresaw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. 
Notice the three kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. It is Micah's way of dating his service time as a prophet. He ruled in Judah during the years of 742 to 687 BCE. Morishath was a rural backwoods hole-in-the-wall town about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So Micah, unlike Malachi that we read last week, was not a blue blood, he was a blue collar. His people were farmers, field hands. And he lived in a time of great upheaval. He saw, foresaw, and foretold the destruction of the divided kingdom of Israel in the north, Judah in the south, he saw what was coming. And just, if you've got just a minute, I'll give you just a taste of this man's preaching. This is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the preaching of Micah. The leaders of Jacob and Israel are contemptuous of justice. They twist and distort right living. Judges sell verdicts to the highest bidder. Priests mass market their teaching. Prophets preach for high honorariums. All the while posturing and pretending dependence on God. We've got God on our side, they say. He'll protect us from disaster. Why, because of people like you, Zion will be turned back into farmland. Jerusalem will end up as a pile of rubble. And instead of the temple on the mountain, it will be a few scraggly scrub pines. End of quote. Does that sound like someone who's unrealistic? Doesn't sound like opium to me. It sounds more like iodine, right? I noticed in our bulletin this morning that there's a page there where you can share your take-homes from the sermon today, and I noticed that one of the questions is, what unsettled you about worship today? And the other one is, what uplifted you? And when I read that, I realized that part of the reason for worship is not just to uplift, but to unsettle. And so it was with Micah. He's not a painkiller. He's just a pain, as preachers and prophets often are. But he doesn't deny reality. He names it. He defines it. And then after he defines it, watch this, he sees beyond reality. In other words, he's the kind of preacher who not only tells it like it is, but tells it how it yet can be by God's grace. And you get just a glimpse of that in Micah chapter 4, verse 3. All of that judgment, all of that bad news, and then this, listen to this. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Now you say, what does that mean? Let me give you the revised chapel version. And they shall melt their drones into drills and their semi-automatics into pliers. What's he doing? Wishful thinking? No. He's redefining reality. He's a realist, but he sees beyond reality. I remember one of the philosophers, Christian philosophers that I studied in seminary, his name was Paul Ricoeur. He called what I've just described, he called it the second naivete. 
That is, not the naivete of a child, but the openness to wonder and mystery that comes from having passed through the wind and fire of modern mess without having one's faith in revelation reduced to ashes. That's the second naivete. That's simplicity on the other side of complexity. Well, I think Micah, I know preachers pretty well, and Micah was one of those preachers who frankly was sort of an oddball. I describe him as a Jewish redneck poet. And you don't see that every day. All seven chapters of this prophet, they're all poetry. And I remember how Fred Beekner once said, biblical prophecy is the revelation of truth through poetry, imagination, and vision. One of my favorite poets from the 20th century, Wallace Stevens, Pulitzer Prize winner said, the poet is the priest of the invisible, of the unseen. It was Robert Frost who said, a poem begins as a lump in the throat, a sense of homesickness, a sense of love sickness. Or I love the way Carl Sandburg said it, poetry is an echo asking a shadow to dance. I was reading a while back of a reporter who interviewed an old Native American woman who came from the Hopi tribe. The reporter asked her about her adult children. She said, I have two sons. One's a dreamer, the other's more practical. One's an engineer and the other's a poet. And then she said, the poet is the practical one. And so it is with Micah. Haven't you ever discovered that poetry is nearer to truth than history. And so in the midst of a polarized, divided nation that is morally and spiritually deteriorating, Micah sees beyond the present mess a future promise. But you, O Bethlehem, who are one of the smallest clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Now to Jewish ears, the mention of Bethlehem telegraphs at least two things, I think. First, it's a reminder of David the most beloved king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. Bethlehem is David's hometown. Secondly, the mention of Bethlehem means that this little clan is outside the cities of power and privilege. It's not Samaria, it's not Jerusalem, it's outside the cities of power and privilege. Bethlehem reminds us then that God, when God is about to do something great, our sense of greatness, which is usually associated with status, size, and power, is completely irrelevant. God deliberately chooses the least, the last, and the unlikely and enables them to do things that the powerful cannot do. You remember it was to Bethlehem in the Old Testament. This is 1 Samuel. It was to Bethlehem that God sent the prophet Samuel to find a new king to succeed Saul. 
The scripture says he was led by the spirit to Jesse's place. Jesse had a house full of boys, eight boys, and one by one, Father Jesse paraded his boys before the prophet. And after seeing all, almost all of the boys, Samuel said, is that all you got? And Jesse said, well, there is, there is one more, but you don't want to see him. I've got one out in the field. He's chasing flies and tending sheep. He's the baby of the family. He's the runt of the litter. And the prophet Samuel said, let's have a look. And in walks this young, baby-faced, teenage shepherd boy. And Samuel says, that's my guy. His daddy was stunned and speechless, as usually fathers are when their sons succeed. The mothers are proud. The daddies are surprised. The other boys were bigger. They were stronger. They were tougher and older. But Samuel explained to Jesse, you people look on the outside, but God looks on the inside. God sees the heart. And that's the keynote of the gospel. That's the theme of the scripture. God intentionally chooses the poor, the meek, the humble, because God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. It's interesting you hear this same theme in Mary's poetry just after she learns that she's to be the birth mother of the Savior. You remember what she wrote on the spot? My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts, and he has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. Wishful thinking? No, that's the gospel truth. It's interesting to me that the early church in the first century read this passage, Micah 5, as confirmation of their faith in Christ. In Matthew 2, sometime after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, this was during Herod's rule, the second chapter of Matthew says that, that magi, wise men, came from the east, a Persian astrologers or stargazers, that they followed this star in the east as, as far as Jerusalem. And when they got to Jerusalem, the holy city, they inquired as to the whereabouts of this Messiah. They said, we have seen his star and we've come to worship him. Now, of course, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. He was alarmed because you can't have two cooks in one kitchen. You can't have two kings in the same region. And so he called the chief priests and teachers of the law. And he asked them, where, where is the Messiah to be born? And they opened up their Torah and they pointed to Micah chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem, out of you will come a king who will shepherd his people Israel. And these wise guys hightailed it to Bethlehem and they found what they were looking for in David's town. Now there's a little irony here, I think, that these pagans who didn't know the scripture came and worshiped the baby king 
while the orthodox believers who knew the Scripture didn't move a muscle. They didn't go. It reminds me of Thomas Merton who once said, the ox and the ass understood more about that first Christmas than the high priest of Jerusalem because it's not enough to know. You have to go. It's also ironic to me that in the Christmas story, the first people to be told of the birth of the Messiah were shepherds, field hands. Micah the prophet who foretold the birth of the king seven centuries before it ever happened was a shepherd. And just the mention of Bethlehem brings the story all together. In a remote, backwater, no-named town, a son of David, a shepherd king, is born, and he will feed his flock in the strength and majesty of the Lord, and he will be your peace. He will be our security. In fact, the child born this day would one day stand on a hillside with his disciples and say, I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep, and they know me. Last word. In 1463, members of the city council of Florence, Italy, decided that they needed a monument to enhance their town. Someone suggested a biblical character motif that could be wrought in the neoclassical style that would be an expression of strength and beauty to the town. And so they commissioned a sculptor to carve a giant statue to stand in front of City Hall. They approached an artist whose name was Agostino de Duccio who agreed to the terms. Duccio went to the quarry near Carrara in Tuscany and marked off a 19-foot slab to be cut from the white marble However, the slab was cut too thin, and when the block was removed, it fell down, leaving a deep fracture down on one side of the marble. The sculptor declared that the stone was useless, and he demanded another, but the city council refused. And consequently, the gleaming block of marble lay on its side, get this, for 38 years. It was a source of humiliation to the town. 38 years later, in 1501, the council approached another citizen who was the son of a local official, asking him if he might complete this ambitious project using a broken stone. His name, Michelangelo Bunarotti. He was 26, gifted with energy, with skill, with faith and imagination, he locked himself inside the workshop behind the cathedral for three years to chisel and polish that broken stone. When he finished, it took 49 men five days to bring it to rest before the city hall. It weighed six tons, 12,478 pounds. It was 17 feet tall. Archways had to be torn down, narrow streets were widened, 
and people from all over Europe came to see the statue of David. Other artists had tried to sculpt David after defeating Goliath, but Michelangelo had the idea that I'll do it before he confronts the giant. 17 feet tall, it was more than the city fathers could have ever imagined, and people still come from all over, from every nation, to see a broken stone that has been transformed from a mistake to a masterpiece. Does that sound familiar? What Michelangelo did with a broken rock, God Almighty can do with a broken life. God doesn't make mistakes. He makes masterpieces. He chisels and polishes. He redeems and reshapes and reforms even marred clay so that we become a work of art. And that, dear friends, is what Christmas is all about. It's not wishful thinking. It's the gospel truth. Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than all you can ask or imagine according to his power at work within you, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus in every generation forever and ever and ever. Amen.